This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Bonnie Wright and Ivana Lynch rose to fame as Ginny Weasley and Luna Lovegood in the Harry Potter series and now use their public platforms to help change the world for the better. As an ambassador for Greenpeace, Bonnie has dedicated her life to advocating for climate justice, using her influence to draw attention to the most serious environmental issues of our time. In conversation with Ivana, she joined us live on stage in London to tell us about Go Gently, her new book of practical advice for reducing your environmental impact and helping guide our planet to a sustainable future. Thank you, thank you everyone. So nice to be here. I'm so excited to talk about your book, Bonnie. Uh, I have a lot of questions, and I know the audience will too. Um, So I wanted to ask, firstly, start with, because you've been on this whirlwind tour, and it's also sort of the culmination of a big body of work. I think that's, to me, that's what's so striking about your book. It's like years of research and and overthinking. Um, And here you are. Uh, How does it feel? Yeah, it feels really good. Uh, it's lovely to actually be in person with people. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for coming. I feel like writing is a very solitary experience, and you spend a lot of the time yeah, behind a computer screen, never really thinking it's actually going to become this like tangible thing you can hold. I feel like so many other things, like film, while you go see the film, you never actually get to like hold this object that feels really real. So it's been really enjoyable to actually see it as a, a piece of work that's like manifested in in something that not only has my words, but it also has, you know, the different people I collaborated with it, with the, with the photography, the illustrations, and things like that. So mm. it's definitely been, like, an out-of-body experience still, too, to, like, walk into a bookshop and see a book. Because mm-hmm. I never would have thought, like, if someone told me four years ago, you know, you're going to have a book out and be an author, I probably wouldn't have believed them. So it's nice to surprise myself. Wow. Um, but it feels good. It feels like now I can, like, let it go. And, and it can is have that what its it is? Own... It's going out into the world? And yeah. It's, it's going on its own journey now? Yeah, I yeah. think you naturally, like, tightly hold and grip creative projects that you, you do or that you put a large part of yourself into. Um, so there's that kind of vulnerability, but then also, like, quite liberating feeling that mm. it's, like, my work is done. People can just read it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I have a ton of questions. And I, I've been sort of geeking out over your lifestyle for a long time. Um, <laughs> as soon as I start seeing you turning up, but, you know, your reusable cups. And it was like, as a vegan, I was like, oh, there's another awkward person in the room. Hooray. <laughs> and I was just very curious about 
the lifestyle, and then you start to share it on YouTube and obviously in the book. And um, I wanted to know, when did you start to feel like this should be a book mm-hmm. rather than, you know, everything's online, there's so, many, there's so many ways of getting information out there. What made you feel like it had to be a book? Yeah, I think... I guess what, what I loved about how the idea for Go Gently formed was I never, ever thought I would even share the things that I talk about in the book. To me, they felt like very just intimate private practices I was doing at home that weren't there or done to be seen or witnessed or like shared. It was really the things that I share in Go Gently and the things that I've been doing were really my kind of, I guess, my like foundation and coping mechanism in the larger scale or actions I was taking within the issue. So, you know, I'd come home from a climate rally or a march or direct action with Greenpeace or someone else and I would come home and I'd feel like my energy kind of plummeted I couldn't keep up that same positivity and hope when it came to my you know home life and the reality of the consumer choices we face so I was like okay I need to like start doing things at home that make me feel a bit more empowered and connected to the larger story so I was really just doing these things out of curiosity seeing how I could be more resourceful seeing how I could learn really more about what goes behind something that's made that I buy or what I eat or different things like that and I was in doing those you know for a couple of years and different people had approached me about doing a book but it had mainly always been about you know more of the kind of front-facing activism, less of the kind of quieter story, and more of the kind of, yeah, activism save the world sort of idea, which I very much shy away from because I don't feel like I sit in that power as a full-time kind of activist on that front line. Mm -hmm. So I loved the idea for the book in the end came just from me thinking of it rather than someone, like, approaching me about it. Um, And I think I really wanted to write a book that looked at celebrating the kind of like imperfection that we should feel okay to be Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas I felt like a lot of the personas or authors or storytellers felt intimidating to me and I was already doing certain things so I was like how could many other people feel maybe even more intimidated so Mm -hmm. I wanted to write yeah a book I guess I hadn't yet kind of seen out there Mm, yeah and it 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 really is like it's a lifestyle guide. I don't think this is a book that you'll read and be done with. It's something you just kind of keep returning to because there's so much in there. It, it's given me a long to-do list, but you've also <laughs> given me, you know, the, um, the comfort of saying, well, the philosophy of the book, go gently. It should be something that you fold into your life. Um, so I just wondered when, when you started the book, did you, did you have like a, a pure vision or intention um, uh, yeah, and, and who did you have in mind when you were writing it? Because I think that's something, a book is such a huge project. You have mm-hmm. to have a singular focus, someone you come back to to keep that vision. So, yeah, I wonder, was that, did you have that? Or like as a, the reader kind of thing? Ideal or, reader, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, I think so many storytellers can often say, like, I want to appeal to as many people as possible, and I want to, like, branch into different circles or groups of people, and that was really important to me. I mean, obviously, there are sometimes you have to be honest with yourself and think, you know, not everyone can love every book or love this book. I think there was a real interesting balance of me being, like, this, I can also write this, and people not connect with it, and that's fine, and Mm. just be true to, like, staying my path of who I wanted to I guess, be and inspire. But I would say, for me, it was always that difficult balance 
of, you know, not creating enough information for maybe people who already kind of put their foot in the door of the movement and they're already beginning to know things, people who were maybe more slightly expert opinions, and then people who it was a completely new subject for them. They would always kind of been interested but never really found their way in. So I really wanted how could I appeal to make everyone feel accepted into the dialogue and believe that they could do anything that I was kind of explaining in the book if it wasn't today, at some point maybe in their life. And I really Mm. wanted to stress that while, like you say, you can maybe make like a to-do list of things you want to start doing from the book, I always wanted to make sure people didn't get like overwhelmed because that's Mm -hmm. the feeling people already feel that was like my least thing that I wanted people to feel so I guess yeah I just wanted people to see that it's kind of you can be practical in these approaches Mm -hmm. when often things can feel quite like philosophical and hard to grasp like Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be very tangible and practical Um, and I wanted people to know that their identity their perspectives their skill set is like their strength when it comes to what they're going to do and how they're going to make the movement theirs. Mm. Um, And I really tried not to sort of say, do this, don't do that, because I just feel when people have said that to me, then I'm already going to feel bad if I am doing the thing they're saying not to do. Mm. So kind of shift that language that shows that there's so much more nuance to the things we choose to do, and it's more just ideal to be just more informed and intentional with the choices we make, because we all know each other the best and like we know what's kind of right and possible maybe in our lifestyle and day-to-day life Mm, yeah overwhelm is a big feeling though from any I think any lifestyle shift really that's just going to be because you're undoing sort of years of social conditioning um I wondered like for you in the early days how how did you because it seems like you're quite grounded and balanced now you know that you have to look after your mental health and be mm-hmm. kind to yourself but how did you handle it in the early days and and also because there are parts in your book where it's like you're just figuring out is this loaf of bread um, made in a way that I like mm-hmm. and other times you're thinking about policy change and the global movement how do you like how did you learn where to invest your energy and time um yeah and keep the balance between I suppose individual action and then societal change mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah, I think I always want to admit that like balance is a hard thing. I feel like people can seem like they have a balanced life, but I would totally be the first to admit that there can be always moments where I feel really torn or pulled between the balance and, and, yeah. it, and find it hard to you know, sometimes get in my own head or too focused on my individual action. And then I'm kind of narrowing my kind of sort of perspective. So I think... I'm always constantly having to kind of like pull myself out of it if I'm going too far, if I'm getting too about kind of the big picture and not forgetting that there are individuals. Sometimes even behind the big corporations, there are still individual people doing doing things. So I think at first when I kind of became increasingly aware of the issues around the climate crisis, obviously particularly I was mainly very passionate about, you know, single-use plastics and ocean health. You know, when I first started trying to implement changes, it was quite black and white the way I saw things. It was like, eradicate plastic. Like, (laughs) I need to feel terrible if I touch a piece of, you know, plastic. And then you start feeling just terrible and kind of in this kind of internal turmoil that then you're like, how does this, this needs to, this is too much. You know, this is not healthy. And that's really been about the journey that took me to the title of Go Gently and this idea that 
it isn't sustainable if we bully ourselves into keeping things up because we will just burn out Mm. and then we might give up entirely because we get so just disheartened and kind of broken down Um, and I think it's really important that we choose manageable things that we can actually try to you know sustain over time and make sure there's care given to not only ourselves but care given to like the subject Mm. Um, so yeah I think it's always a constant battle between the individual and the collective but I think the best thing I learned was a softening in realizing like I didn't have to do things like perfectly or Uh all day every day like our life from week to week can change so this book is obviously your vision but it has many voices you've kind of drawn from this collective wealth of wisdom from lots of activists and just advocates and scientists all those kind of people was that early on in the process that you realized it was important to have all those voices and how did you meet all these amazing people yeah um, I got, I'm just trying to think now, like when that came to be a thought to put those other voices in. I don't think it, I think it was in the kind of when I was like writing the kind of pitch to pitch to publishers. I think I, you know, knew as a kind of white privileged person within this topic, I A, couldn't not talk about very important topics of kind of social justice and climate justice within this issue and just voice that truth mm-hmm. to show that kind of vulnerability and while I'm the storyteller and author there are many many situations and scenarios where I'm the listener and I Mm. I'm not necessarily needing to be the person speaking the loudest in a room and that is deserved more to other people so for me those interviews were mainly honestly about hoping that for readers they may see something in one of those interviews that reflects back to them more of themselves maybe Mm -hmm. than they saw in my words and that could inspire their kind of hope and connecting all the dots together. I feel like, you know, I think what you don't get in non-fiction is the ability to like be many different characters which you can Mm -hmm. sometimes give in fiction and you're like, oh, I'll write this character and someone's going to identify with that and someone's Mm going to identify with that. So the interviews in a way are like creating more of a ensemble I guess of characters so that people can see there are so many ways into the movement and there isn't just the obvious kind of maybe more stereotypical role of the person you know with the microphone at the head of stage or in front of the the climate rally kind of shouting the loudest there's actually Mm -hmm. all these different types of people and personalities and then in terms of meeting them a kind of mixture some people I had met sort of in person from some actions, like there was a researcher and the executive director of Greenpeace. Um, And then other people that I'd like... Honestly, a lot of those people I'd actually met through social media and connecting with Mm -hmm. them through kind of Instagram and following each other's work because we had similarities of interests. And I also did like a couple... It was mainly during kind of the early days of of kind of the first lockdown and in COVID, I I did a couple of... um, like Instagram live dialogues, these people I'd only kind of DM'd. Uh, and those conversations were kind of a real big reminder to me that it was so important to have these other voices in. So a lot of them now, since being more out in the world, I've actually been able to see and mm-hmm. in person, which has been nice. Um, so yeah, all of those, which is interesting because obviously I've chosen the book because it's very much not online as a medium, but interestingly, a lot of those people I met through being online. And 
it was very refreshing. I'm sure you feel the same, that practice of, of writing when so much can exist online mm-hmm. is a really refreshing and like good practice to put yourself like through that kind of focus that it that it requires. Yeah, and to have that time for it to develop rather mm-hmm. than this has to be published now and you have to keep yeah. making content. Yeah. And that immediate thing we often think we need like an opinion straight away because yeah. everyone's asking our opinion. So it felt yeah, more like I came to it through my own time, the the way of writing. Mm. But yeah. Nice. You said there about listening, and I think that's very clear in the interviews that you've done with the people. Um, I wondered, was there anything while you were writing the book throughout the process that anyone said to you or something you learned that really shocked you? Because I think, you know, a lot of activists do talk about that you get compassion fatigue, that you care so much that you can't care anymore and nothing actually shocks you anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there anything that surprised you while, while writing it? There's... A couple of things that people... I was also so... I wished I could include, like, the whole... Because each person I spoke to for, like, an hour and a half or something only had quite an edited version of their interview. So I'd love maybe one day to do their, like, full transcribed interview because there's so many good nuggets of, like, perspectives and, and ideas. I think in a positive way, what really, like, kind of shocked me, particularly the people who just do this, you know, they're doing their kind of activism, their work 24-7, just how genuinely like ready and open they were to like constantly be learning and like being in conversation or their kind of generosity I think of of time that Mm -hmm. they gave to me and 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 how many people said quite similar things when it came to like a question I asked them like what instills hope in you and how and another question I asked which is kind of obviously in the title of the book which is like what's an actionable piece of advice you give mm-hmm. like no one said the same thing which just reminded to me like wow there are so many ways that we can do and implement change and then another one which I know you have mentioned which is in an interview uh, by a guy called Richard Anthony which talks about like essentially language and how I mean he particularly uses the example of waste essentially and how that word has kind of been stripped of its kind of true value we've kind of we call it a thing rather than an action like you know I wasted something not like oh this waste and basically beginning to try and see something as not like you know throwing this water bottle away it's like okay that's glass which is sand that lid is metal you know that's been mined the paper that was a tree so just beginning to actually see where I was surprised and just yeah learning how much language needs to be like I guess celebrated more and redefined I think particularly too when it comes to this issue you know when it comes to um the misuse of language with greenwashing terms the way that people kind Mm -hmm. of make you think you're doing this is a sustainable product and you're like okay cool what what exactly (laughs) is sustainable about it and actually asking those questions and assuming that someone else's definition of sustainability or waste is not necessarily your definition Mm -hmm. so I think it made me in that interview, particularly with him, just catch myself. And I tried to really, after he said that, like to not say waste that much mm-hmm. and see how much it did actually come up as a word and how I was kind of maybe misusing it. It's such a great concept in the book. Do you mind if I share a quote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you articulated it beautifully there. But 
Um, so he said, yeah, stop using the concept of waste as a verb rather than a noun. And you said, the most powerful lesson I've learned from this journey is to reevaluate and to work to eliminate the word waste from my everyday vocabulary. By calling items materials and precious resources waste, we strip them of their value and quickly divorce ourselves from having responsibility to any of them. Like, this has really impacted me. I've been going through my trash at home. I've, and <laughs> I spent last week, actually, I, had, I was on, living on my friend's boat for a few days. And that's an interesting yeah, thing you because have to keep it all. you literally and, yeah. pick up your toilet and you, you have mm-hmm. to get rid of it. And it's just like, wow, we've all, we are so disconnected from it. And as you say, it's reframing your thinking to, to not just say, that's not mine anymore, that, to take responsibility. But anyway, it has been a perspective shift and I have to keep catching myself and not saying, that's trash, that's, been, that's for the bin. I wondered, was there anything else along your journey that was like a big perspective shift that mm-hmm. you see it in a completely different way since becoming a sustainability advocate? I think just even the process of like writing the book, like even though already from the get-go I wanted to be, you know, as the title suggests and kind of really give care back to like ourselves and help us feel better so we can be more equipped to help others and help the planet. But I feel... What was really surprising in the process of writing the book is how much more I softened. And when I look back at first drafts, and I think this was genuinely from having all those conversations with the people I interviewed, you know, going on a few specific site visits for photos in the book, and just the research. I think the deeper you look into anything, the more complex it is. So I was just, the biggest thing I think that I was surprised at is I think how much my voice changed through the writing process. Uh Uh, And I think even though that was my intention at the beginning to be soft, how actually quite hard maybe those earlier drafts were, just again going back to this like, there's no right or wrong, good or bad, like that's just not that black and white, like there's Mm -hmm. so much more nuance. So, and I think that came from broadening my like perspectives basically um which sometimes can be frustrating because sometimes we all want to just know what to do and we want to be just mm. tell me what to do and <laughs> and it's been interesting like one of the main questions or one of the frequent questions that have come up around the interviews for the book and the promotion I've been doing is people will be like what is one thing I can be doing or what are five top things I can be doing and I always say, like, I hate to give you not an answer you want, but, like, I don't think there are five top things to do because, mm-hmm. or one top thing. Because I could mention that to you and you might be like, that doesn't really interest me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. So then you may not do anything. Whereas my idea for the book is this idea that, like, you will find your unique thing through maybe something you like to do, you have mm-hmm. a, you know, skill for, um, and you make your top five things. Um, because I feel like I had been alienated in the past from other people who gave me this kind of strict kind of bullet points that Mm -hmm. didn't quite fit with my life or what I was interested in. Yeah, yeah, too prescriptive, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that changed, again, through the writing process. I tried to be less so, but still Mm. give that balance, like still not say anything and be like, do whatever you want, because that wouldn't be a very useful book, but not being like, do this, this, and this, and like, Mm. you should feel bad. Oh, no, you've given people plenty to do, don't worry, (laughs) (laughs) it's quite specific, you're you're fine. Um, Actually, that was a question I had, because when I was reading it, I did at points have to go, wait a minute, you know, because it was a lot, it's, you pick up your toothbrush and you've got a dozen questions, every little thing. Mm -hmm. I wondered, like, do you have any advice for readers who 
when they're reading this book, like what is sort of a measure of success? Do you say set yourself, you know, two things to do every week, or um, yeah, because it can it can easily turn into obsessive perfectionism. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Which then kind of, like you said, like distracts you from the bigger picture, which can be about these larger shifts that need to happen, like changes in policy mm-hmm. or you know putting pressure on corporations and governments and to make better choices. So. Often, too, when I get too stuck on the individual, I'm like, okay, let's bring this back out to perspective. Like, maybe that's actually quite minor in the bigger picture. (laughs) And then other days, I'm like, no, this is really important and big. So I think a measure of success is difficult, but I think... I I, Well, I would say it's a feeling more than, like, a Mm. I've did this, like, tick. It's more this feeling, I think, of feeling like there's some ownership over choices you've made and they've actually you can see like whether that's just feeling happy from that action you've taken or even I remember when I first started like really trying to use less packaging packaged foods or you know compost my food scraps and organic waste just literally taking out like a smaller bag less often Mm. of rubbish I was like that is literally Mm. a physical reduction I have seen and I'm taking less out and you kind of don't you're not hoping to do it you just see it one day and it's Mm -hmm. like oh wow that actually manifested as something I can see whereas other things you'll never see the impact right they're just you have to believe and trust in them Mm. I mean in the book I suggest and use um, an idea called a habit tracker so like say you could decide you know in a month you're going to choose three things you're going to implement whether that's you know always remember my reusables or you know mm-hmm. take my own lunch to work or whatever it could be and you put that in there and you basically just tally off the days that you managed to do that not because it's like you need to get every day to succeed but you can just see your patterns and I think mm-hmm. seeing and witnessing and being more aware of your patterns or like you say you know actually having to you know I don't know if you go camping or you're mm-hmm. in a car for a while you're having to hold onto your rubbish so you're actually seeing it And that's information, like, that can help you to be like, oh, wow, I actually hadn't stopped to think. I mainly, I'm not able to do that habit thing that I wanted to shift because it doesn't work so well when I'm busy or it doesn't work so well when I have a long day at work or you can just, it's all feedback and information. And that, to me, felt like success where I felt like there was more clarity in my practices and habits where sometimes everything can kind of feel like, a noise and you don't know what's what mm. and that felt helpful to me that feedback essentially and being nice. honest with myself in that feedback yeah nice this episode of the podcast is sponsored by marquee tv marquee tv is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture with my subscription i've enjoyed watching some of the royal shakespeare company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We were talking a bit earlier about individual uh, versus collective action. And there was someone in the book who I thought articulated just so perfectly why it's important, the individual action, which I hadn't heard before. So this is a quote by Annie Leonard, the executive director of Greenpeace. And she said, I like to think of the individual actions as a metal detector to find the flaws in the system. Anywhere that's hard for us as individuals to do what's right, that's a system flaw and helps us find it so we can fix it. We should redesign our consumer economy so that doing the right thing is the easy thing to do. Instead, uh, we should make the people who want to pollute go out of their way to pollute. I just thought that was brilliant, you know, and that's, that's what needs to happen. And I just would love to know, through your process of, you know, making these changes... Did you, what, what are some of the flaws in the system that you identified and um, are there any that do you find are still a big problem? Yeah, I think I'm constantly always reminded like when things are really difficult or I feel like I'm kind of hitting my head against a wall, I'm like, oh, actually maybe that's nothing to do with me and it's, <laughs> as Annie says, a red flag to show this is a system issue, this is a system flaw and it's such a relief. You can kind of be like, oh, okay, I can step out of that kind of anger I feel Mm. and actually maybe refocus that anger towards you know the people who are not being kind of caught in their kind of polluting ways and I think that was helpful for me in moments of you know some things that you're just like you want to buy but you're given no option to buy the thing you want or you have something that's broken and you literally can't find anywhere to fix it like so much of the time happens with technology and you're forced to like buy a new phone or a new charger or whatever it may be you know that's not fair that there aren't better ways that people can fix something or have more choices have more accessible choices and not have to go to specialty shops or online or different things so with those moments yeah stepping back and I find often quite a feeling of relief when I'm like oh I can redirect that frustration to someone who is actually sitting in way more power to make that easier for me Mm. and obviously if we don't do that you're forgetting millions of people who don't have the access to even you know it's a luxury that we you know living in a city have the choice to Mm. to do certain things or use public transport or you know things that could be really frustrating for other individuals who don't have the accessibility to public transport and are forced to maybe be in cars, use more, you know, fossil fuels through petrol. So it's always a really great moment when you see the system issue because you're like, oh, I'm not the only one. If I'm finding this difficult, Mm -hmm. thousands of others are finding that Mm -hmm. frustrating. But again, too, in those moments, you know, people often say like, well, what do I do then? How do I see how that connects to policy? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so important. And so many people said this in their interviews in the book, that the best thing you can do is find community within this movement to when there are moments like that, you can kind of share that and that load can be lessened or they might have a great idea for you to do because they've tried it before. So, and, and community could be a community already existing. That could be your workplace and starting like a you know, sustainability initiative within your you know, workplace where it could be at 
school, college, it could be, you know, typing in like a larger organization like, you know, London chapter of Greenpeace and like signing up to something like that. I do find when I want to connect to the system issues and the societal stuff, it's best and most easy to do when you you join a group. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like, where we are now sharing this issue yeah. it just is, it does give you hope doesn't it and, and sort of invigorates you to keep doing the work because you see loads of people do care mm-hmm. yeah you mentioned that the book is you wanted to show people that there's many different ways to do activism or to be part of this movement you don't even have to identify as an activist I suppose I would love to know like how did you personally discover your role in the climate crisis movement and um, well, I'm curious, like, is it something you enjoy? Because a lot of the time activism is you're looking at the things you don't like about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Do you, do you enjoy this work? Yeah, it's a good question. I definitely do. Uh, there's definitely moments, though, when you when you know a lot about something, you can be even more angry about the issue, which yeah. sometimes you're like, oh, gosh, I wish I didn't know that statistic or I didn't see that firsthand. You know, sometimes things can be like, I think I say this in the book, I can't remember if Annie Leonard says it or Greenpeace said it, like they say a thing of like, once you know, you owe this idea that once Ooh. you really know something, like you owe it to that issue to talk about it and share it <laughs> with other people. And so while that is so true, you also don't want to think like you're chained to the identity of activism, mm-hmm. I think, because there are many other parts that make up who individuals are. And when it comes to, I guess, my role within it, to me, the only way I've ever seen the world is through, like, the medium of storytelling. Like, you know, for both of us, that's, like, our, a lot of our life has been through that, whether it's been through different mediums of, you know, acting, writing, whatever that may be. That's kind of how I, like, see my lens, I guess, is, like, listening, kind of thinking about it, ruminating on it, and kind of making sense of it for me personally by writing it down, making a film, Obviously, the last thing is the audience and the reader, but there's also, like, a part of me that, like, I help to kind of comprehend the world, yeah, through writing and through storytelling. Mm. Um, And I think that was always clear that that was my role, I guess, was that kind of listening to people and giving platform to their issue or their perspective through not only, obviously, the medium of wanting to tell the story through a book or a film, but also the understanding and this is like something we've both spoken about, like, but the, the platform in which that we have to obviously be able to amplify that message to a lot of people mm-hmm. isn't something that was like, oh, I should do this, I should tell everyone. Mm. It's like, I'm passionate and I'm just going to tell people and it happens to be that's quite a lot of people. Yeah, but are all it, here, like, so you're going to listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, didn't, it came that way around, you know? It's mm. like something mm. that I'm passionate about and like it must be that same feeling for you that's who you are you're not going to like quieten that part of you when Mm. you care about an issue and sharing that with with other people Mm. yeah yeah sometimes I feel that sometimes I feel like oh this is all it's it's pressure and you know the way people do say you've Mm -hmm. got a platform like it's that balance of you don't want to fall into a trap of just saying things to have something to say yeah and knowing moments where like okay I do feel something but I can just keep it to myself or (laughs) chat to my friend about it you know knowing when to like the whole world doesn't yeah need to hear that or also like giving the stage to someone else through that platform Mm. or whatever that may be Mm. there's a lovely part of your book um towards the end of the book where you talk about 
readers finding their part of the movement. And I, I think this is such an important topic because I think the, you know, the activists tend to be the ones people notice because they're, they're the loudest ones, they're the most confident ones, and they're so important. But we also need healers and teachers and all that kind of thing. Could you share some of you know, your ideas on how people can find their role in this? Yeah, sure. So the, the final chapter in the book that's called Go Beyond really looks at this essentially, like how you can begin to take these practices that have been quite, you know, solo and individual and start kind of branching those out into larger spheres, whether that's, you know, how to adapt that into social environments, work environments. But then the other big part of that chapter, as you say, is like finding your role or maybe you already feel like you have a role but deepening that or understanding more about it and Mm -hmm. there's a few practices that I basically outlined to maybe help guide that like one is talking about kind of imagining like the archetype that you could imagine Mm -hmm. within any person that's not just about you know your role as an advocate or an activist but just who you are as a person so it actually does like a questionnaire um, that helps you define that so obviously those roles could be the storyteller, it could be the organiser, it could be the caretaker, it could be, you know, every movement or organisation or charity mm. might need the accountant, the lawyer, the, you know, the nurse, the, you know, the driver, all those different roles are needed and, and they might not be as obvious as the ones I just kind of suggested. But I, I've always been so continually surprised how so many people were just too scared to give it a go or try in fear that their personality wasn't the right fit for the movement or Mm. like they didn't I didn't I don't really know anything but I want to do something you know that is like the worst fear for any movement that people feel alienated or not like they're going to be accepted and I think and again I obviously already said like joining a group finding a movement I think that can really help us to kind of feel out who we are when we Mm. might not know like and the first group you join might not be the right one but that might lead you to the next or the first role you do as a volunteer might not be the right fit but it's helped you to feel that you've you know started that first step um so yeah go beyond is about these different kind of archetypes and then also looking at I guess purpose within it and I think a lot of the practices that I talk about kind of to me always feel a bit like I'm like doing the same questions you had to do for like careers advice when you were like 17 or 18 or like figure out what degree you wanted to study like very similar questions kind of come into play Mm, yeah I would love to talk about your writing process because you know we're in a room full of readers I'm sure there are people who want to write books of their own I'd love to know what was the writing process like for you and were what were your main challenges I suppose and how did you overcome them yeah oh I feel like now the idea of knowing what writing a book is like I'm probably more daunted to ever think about writing another one like I feel like the naivety of not knowing and just be like yeah I can do this mm-hmm. and just things that I didn't I don't know the turnaround that I had of like the first draft now in hindsight I'm like that was too short and I needed longer but I think a what I loved about the process was having deadlines you know so many other things that I have made myself like that I've directed and written short mm-hmm. films of my own they were dictated by me they weren't really like necessarily always for other people um so I loved the deadlines of things at first it took me like a few months to even put anything on the page and I was like wow I'm really eating into my time and I still haven't like (laughs) written anything down but during that time what was really important for me I think in that time was like really understanding what the voice was before Mm -hmm. beginning to write 
And I think what massively helped me as well is I had already written a very detailed plan of the book, like all the chapters that there are in the book. I had already kind of thought of those titles and planned them out. And it always reminds me of like being in English and the English teachers like write an essay plan. It's really going to be helpful. Like, no, no, I'll just write the essay. It's fine. I got this. And then you get like a paragraph in and you're like, where am I going with this essay? So the essay plan is very helpful as a concept and was kind of my plan. And I was very pleased to have that. So that helped. And honestly, a big part of it was like knowing when to just like get over myself and keep mm. writing like moments where you had blocks and you were like okay I need to just step back go for a walk and then there are other days like I have no time to step back or take mm. a walk like I have a deadline tomorrow and I need to finish so that was like this beautiful kind of like I say that the art of kind of getting over yourself and pushing past the discomfort mm-hmm. and how on the other side those felt like the biggest wins to me those like really difficult days where I got past it when everything just felt like a mess that I was writing and mm. then there would just be like one sentence that felt like, oh, that was kind of, there was some clarity in that. They felt like the days that made me keep kind of going. But I don't know. I think we all, everyone has like a different, like weird and wonderful way that they write that's probably uniquely like different as well, probably to the subject matter. Like for me, I always knew I could dip back into some research or I could kind of move to a different chapter. Like, because right. it wasn't, linear necessarily I did have the freedom to move around chapters Mm -hmm. and there were a couple like the hardest chapters to write were go learn the first chapter and go shop they were the two hardest ones because they're so complex and huge Mm -hmm. where the other more anecdotal sort of like practical fun ones were like I'd always go to those I'm like no you shouldn't be right you should be doing the difficult one why are you still in this chapter yeah um (laughs) But yeah, I don't know how, as well, I'd love to hear how you found that process and how it must be uniquely different for each of us, like how that felt or maybe similarities. Uh, the actual getting it written. Just getting so. it written and that kind of like, that very intimate relationship you're having with yourself and like the page. Oh, I thought I was losing my mind. It was awful. <laughs> I, the only way I got it done was a little app it's so mm-hmm. sad, but this is what I had to do, called Forest. Um, and it's this concentration app and it's, you tell yourself, I'm going to sit and do this for two hours. You tell your phone that. So it disables all notifications. And if you try and get into the app, a tree dies. But if, oh, you, no. if, you, complete, <laughs> if you complete the two hours, a tree grows. And oh, I, wow. I just I got obsessed with this forest. And I, I was at a stage where I was like, you know what? I might not be able to do this book, but at least I'll have a lovely forest. I have this beautiful a virtual forest. forest. <laughs> yeah. I still, I still sometimes look back at that forest See of 2021. Trees, like, yeah. That's the only way the book got good, written. I'll just have to look like, into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was often told when writing the book and through the process of publishing it, People always say, ah, writing a book changes you. Um, I wondered, is that true for you? And how has it changed you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Kind of, I guess, mentioned it a little bit, like that kind of the further softening I felt that took place in the writing process and how more hyper-aware I became of language. I think particularly when you're talking about a very heavy topic, but you're also looking at, like, the hope and the possibility, that continual balance of not belittling how very important and urgent this crisis is and finding it like a lovely growth of like, I guess, that nuance and that balance of 
not shying away from being direct and forceful in something I'm very passionate about and can be quite sometimes angry about when I hear and about kind of scary truths of it. And then also knowing that like the soft kind of loving kind of compassion of myself can exist simultaneously with mm-hmm. those two things was kind of a nice feeling to like see happen. And I think a lot of that came in the editing process and being quite like clear on, yeah, I think just the, the I guess, choice of words, basically, in the intention of things, mm-hmm. like feeling like it became more clear and specific for me and it abled like there was like a loosening like a loosening of the grip somehow on the topic and like how I wanted to inspire people I kind of like hope that it's like allowed for people to see more ways in and it being less like an intense block of text that they can't sort of like see themselves between the lines Mm -hmm. like I think there was kind of like a loosening unraveling I guess and I think because it's so much work and you're pouring so much of yourself into it you can't not like unravel like that kind of vulnerability in it Mm -hmm. is like quite cathartic I guess Mm -hmm. like any process like is I guess I don't know but yeah I think now having it actually done I can begin to like think of the the changes that it's now I'm like come up for air yeah exactly Uh, yeah Yeah, I guess and also having had now you've obviously had your book out in October do you feel like even more perspective shift has come for you as you've let go of it more and it's less of your kind of baby yeah I don't know if you have that thing I have a weird sort of relationship with anything that's sort of my past art I immediately go Ugh, where did you come <laughs> from that's why I should never be a mother you know I just can't <laughs> <laughs> something I think about I do kind of go like oh done um, but I, I'm happy with, do you know, my, my book, we haven't been talking about it, but my book is very different, of course. It's like personal memoir. And I really, I was not prepared for how much, I suppose, healing it would do for me. Mm-hmm. I realized, like, after the book that it was my 11-year-old self just having a huge rant about <laughs> yeah. all these things that she felt were done wrong. And, um, yeah, once it was out there, I was like, wow, I feel so much lighter. I feel, yeah, I would definitely recommend, you know, personal memoir writing as a, an arduous form of therapy but it, and that it, it shedding was, that like yeah. layer of all things that you kind of have always still wanted to say and were able to have the medium to say it even yeah. if it was kind of like a pulling looking into the past and allowing that you to have that space yeah. to like let go of things yeah exactly exactly um but I had the opposite experience of you know where you're you said oh I've written a book and it, you know, that it's actually it's become harder mm-hmm. I think all the while that I was like pitching the book to my uh, uh, publisher I was sitting there and something in my head was going I can't do this I can't <laughs> believe they're falling for this yeah. and then to have actually written it was like oh wow I did it cool you yeah, know? yeah I feel like oh, that I can do that again so yeah. I hope you come back to that because I hope you will keep writing yeah yeah <laughs> I think now I'm like I just like to lie down for a second of course of course yeah yeah um hope is a big part of the book for you mm-hmm. and I, that's just something that you need to have I think in this movement and you asked everyone in the book what instills hope in them so I would love to ask you that question yeah oh that's a good one I feel like all the dialogues I had were like the hopeful lifeline to me when I was writing the book like knowing I had a chat with these people and a conversation like every conversation I had with them made me that day be all the more excited to go back to my writing and I think for me it showed that I find hope in connection and in hearing other people's 
perspectives that mm-hmm. completely makes me realize like that same thing when people say like oh feelings just temporary like don't worry it'll pass and then it does pass and you're like oh before that was like consuming and I think that for me for me felt the same when I felt stuck on an idea or hopeless at the situation of the climate crisis I would just talk to someone and be like wow that like so quickly just opened up my mm-hmm. mind and like that I guess that continual opportunity we have and I feel like I have to meet people to continually learn and to know that the things that I've written in this book five months five years from now I'll know a lot more and maybe I'll disagree with some things I've said and I think that's nice that idea that you can learn and unlearn things and mm. yeah I guess that if I'm like it's not permanent mm. that feeling that you can often feel so yeah that opportunity to continue to learn and how many people like create amazing resources for that to happen whether that is a talk whether that is online platforms whether that is somewhere to go like I feel like there's more and more I hope Mm -hmm. abilities for people to access that new perspective learnings yeah that's lovely hey there I'm Dr. Maya Shunker and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, On that note, I would love to take audience questions we would so yeah jump up and whatever you would like to ask us <laughs> ask Bonnie um, I wanted to ask what would you advise to sort of encourage people in our own personal life that might be a bit resistant to this movement to, to take on some of these practices or would you advise against that and just to focus on our own journey yeah that's a good question um, yeah like how we shift and change people around us maybe you mean to like get down with the things that we're doing as well I think yeah that's hard because I think a lot of people come up against that whether that's like their friends or their family I always think it's better to continue in what you're doing and know that sometimes without even knowing it you will create influence and sometimes you can't see that happen that like ripple effect and I think if we sit in those actions and look joyous and and like we love doing them, then that can be infectious to other people. I've always found personally, I'm not that good at being inspired if someone guilts me into doing it or tells me like, you know, they sit on some higher ground because they've kind of discovered this, you know, new sustainable shift and never assume, I think, that people aren't doing something even if you can't see it out in the open. I remember being told that like, I think maybe someone at Greenpeace talking about like how, you know, say your local coffee shop that you love just don't have very good sustainable practices in the packaging they use. Like never go in and be like, could I speak to the manager and directly assume that they're terrible, they're not doing anything about it. You always want to be like, hi, you may be already beginning to think about the materials in the cups you're using. But if you aren't, like I'd love to talk to you about ideas around it. Like never assume people aren't doing it. Yeah, if it's not in the open. And I think just stick doing what you you know what you're doing and and not try and think that the responsibility is on you to change that person because you might find that a very troublesome hard battle against yourself um yeah I hope that answers your question thanks 
Hi, I'm Lottie, and I'm annoying because I have two questions. Um, first of all, when you were little, Bonnie, where did your interest initially come from for sustainability? And then second, um, sometimes being sustainable is easy, such as or cheap, such as buying secondhand. But when it comes to things like local produce, it can be so much more expensive than buying food that comes from far away. So what's your thought on that and what do you suggest people do? Yeah, sure. Uh, first question uh, about being kind of drawn to sustainability. I guess for me, I mean, a main reason that I got into caring about single-use plastics is because I love the seaside, I love coastal environments, and I found so much joy from those places. So it was being in those places that I was seeing firsthand, like plastic pollution. So it came from a place of wanting to protect somewhere that I'd loved since I was a child, I guess, or a place that I found, like, felt at home. Um, and I think I always was someone who, like, loved to take part. Like, I always at school would be, if there was, like, a, ba- like a cake sale happening to raise money for charity, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to bake the cake, I'm going to set up and set the table up. Like, I love to show up, and I think that is what a lot of this work can be about. Uh, and then your second question, yeah, I agree, yeah. Some choices around these issues can actually, you know, be more affordable, um, and others can be expensive and inaccessible. And I think that goes back to this idea of like where there's a system problem, like that is not right, that local produce that's come from less far away is more expensive because A, we should be being given the better option to invest in our local economy and farmers and things like that. Um, And I think, yeah, knowing not to bully ourselves into thinking I'm doing the worst choice, making the worst choice and knowing maybe how could you find a campaign or an organization that looks at that, the affordability of healthy local food. So yeah, that constant shift of compromise, I think a lot of consumer choices is often about compromise, being like, okay, you know, I was able to buy that thing secondhand, that's great, today I have to buy these bananas that came from Costa Rica, like, that is okay, like, seeing and knowing that things can change, or like, one week you did really well, and the next week you feel like those habits kind of crumbled a bit. I think knowing that that's okay and finding compromise in in consumer choices or or going to the supermarket and and asking them questions like, why are are these more expensive than than this option? Hi. First of all, congratulations on your wedding and uh, (laughs) and everything. But my question was kind of a little bit of a variation of the previous one, which was around, obviously, as you know, there is a really dire cost of living crisis in this country, in, in the US where we live, and not saying anything really of um, the developing world. Um, and so I think it is obviously kind of this, at this point we really try to say that the poor are really the most affected by the environmental crisis, um, but also they are the least able to really make sustainable choices, I feel, mostly because of the cost that is involved. Um, so what would you say is a way of mobilizing um, millions upon millions of people who are really standing to benefit from improving environmental, the environment, environmental state of the world, but are the least able to do so without obviously pressuring them even further? Yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, A, I definitely feel like I'm probably not the best expert to give you a full, deep answer to that, but I would say from what I understand obviously going back to policy, like if policy is in place that makes there be certain kind of better accessibility around, 
you know, food or transport that is affordable or all these different things that is about how do you help mobilize people so that is the easier option to make the kind of better choice. Um, and I do genuinely think that that comes down to like putting our energy back into democracy so that people can, who are less fortunate are able to make those choices and to allow everyone into that idea. So it could be not just the person's unaccess their inability to access something is to do with, you know, their financial situation, but also maybe to do their physical ability or mental ability to participate in these systems that are existing and great, but they're not necessarily designed for everyone. And I think also a really important thing, which I kind of mention in the book, is a lot of the things that, and I can only talk about the kind of things that I talk about in this book, but aren't necessarily these new ideas. They aren't necessarily about buying new sustainable products. It's actually more about how do we look to our past and generations only maybe two or three before mine that were already doing things that were more resourceful and not out of necessarily privilege, but more out of just the reality of their life. They weren't thinking they needed the next new phone or the next kind of thing. They would fix things. They would make things themselves a lot of these things, you don't need a new reusable water container. You can like upcycle something that you already have. And I try and really stress that in the book and how much we can get trapped in that idea that a lot of these things need to be like about progress and newness. And there are so many cultures who have brilliant practices like this and they've been maybe better at like skill sharing them. But I think to answer your question, I would say it's really about making the polluters kind of, as you said in that quote, go out of their way to pollute rather than individuals be forced into that. So I think it's really honestly putting pressure on governments and the fossil fuel industry is, is like the main big uh, polluter and kind of holder of that, that power. So yeah, there's the kind of the gentle bit and the kind of the go, the forceful, the bit that we need to do. But I hope that kind of answers your question. Thanks. Um, hello, thank you for sharing everything with us today. I had a more broader question, kind of beyond the personal journey. I work in brand consulting and helping brands kind of be more authentic, and I was thinking how you felt and what your opinion was on how brands can talk about sustainability and advance the conversation around sustainability whilst avoiding this whole greenwashing issue. It's a massive challenge in my job, so it would be great to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's, it's refreshing when, like, like you say, you're individually asking that while you exist within a larger company. And that's just always, to me, like a prime example that while we see companies and organizations as these big thing, they're made up of individuals who want to be doing the right thing and they're interested to do the right thing. So I always try and remind myself that when companies can feel like they're never going to do the right thing, even though you're trying to. Like in the work I've done with Greenpeace of like, you know, trying to put and push action on big companies like Coca-Cola, Nestle, stuff like that, that feel like these immovable, hard, kind of unbreakable organizations and companies. Reminding myself that they're individuals. And I think for people who are trying to do that, I guess, like, how can you find resources and networks of people who maybe are, like, advisors in that space? Or maybe, you, you know, do you have a company that you think is a really good model of how you, you as a company would like to be like? Like, to have that kind of aspiration, like, have an aspirational company that you think you'd like to become more like? I think 
because we have that in individual lives, we often like have people we look up to and can kind of use them as a resource. And I think know that I feel like as a customer or consumer, sometimes I can give brands my opinion and they don't always really feel heard. So I feel like how can people actually just listen to the people that are using their services like a bank or using their products and maybe implement the change in a way that reflects like what the people actually uh, want and how that can be implemented in a way that's like accessible and just. But yeah, and I think keep you know, finding like-minded colleagues that want to do it too, like you can definitely create a stronger kind of movement within that. But yeah, just know that it's so important even if it feels sometimes like a long journey to make changes in big companies like banks. You know, you have to be in it for the kind of deep time of the, the movement. Hi there. Um, this is scary. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. That was so, so fascinating and insightful. I, I have a question around one of the themes that you brought up between individual and systematic forces. And I want to ask about systematic forces because my question is how do we influence governments to take collective responsibility? I know with the pandemic, we were so quick to lock up the walls and you know, put on red lists and do all kinds of things like that and hoard vaccines. How do we avoid that kind of reaction for this global issue? Because you can't put up walls, carbon will just come right on over. Yeah, I feel like what's hard or what, what, what's been a real big reminder of something for me when it looks at government that I maybe never thought about because we often just think about like the, the prime minister or the main kind of party in power, I had kind of totally overlooked. Uh, and I think living in the US really reminded me of this because the scale of government is just, you know, huge, is the importance of you know, your local MP, you know, the laws that are being passed in your city, in your kind of county, all those kind of things, realizing that sometimes trying to change things that feel just so stuck in a direction maybe you're not quite aligning with politically, to really refocus your energy maybe on local, local politics or grassroots organization that are their main focus is on policy, whether that's through being a think tank or whether that's to do with, you know, they put a lot of money behind campaigning for something. That always, to me, makes government like at a a scale I can kind of understand. Like sometimes like the big, huge, like main kind of elections and, and policy changes can often feel like impossible. Um, so I, I have found trying to understand a bit more about like local kind of politics has helped, helped me um, just kind of having a relationship with knowing what your local MP stands for and like how writing letters as like simple and old school as they are like genuinely can make shifts and ripples that do kind of work their way up um and I think right now we're living in a kind of strange era where like there feels like these antiquated kind of gatekeepers of a lot of these positions of power and I feel like I often have to like be like patient and hopeful that you know a new kind of generation of people will begin to step up into that into those roles if we begin to familiarize ourselves with who those potential new local kind of um, people could be that we could begin to begin to try shift up into more like larger you know positions of power within government so yeah I hope that answers your question 
Hi, I'm Courtney, and I'm so inspired by both of you. Thank you so much for your words tonight. I actually have a quick question for both of you as well, if that's okay. Bonnie, I'm about ready to graduate with a master's in advocacy and activism, and I'm really looking to get more involved in organizations, but I also know that not all organizations are like created equal, and some have better impacts than others, or some are more greenwashing or, you know, saying that they're doing these things, but they're not really. So I'm wondering if you have like, a couple of organizations in your mind, I mean obviously Greenpeace, but some others that you really recommend because that you've seen them and you've seen that they're doing good and actually having a good impact on the world. And then Ivana, I'm super inspired by your book and your story as well. And from someone who also has recovered from eating disorders and have had a similar journey to yours, I'm also wondering about how that connects with your veganism and your vegan activism and if like veganism to you ever creeps into the t territory of disordered eating and how you manage the two. Because I try to be plant-based, but sometimes I feel that push and pull of like um, disordered eating and how it creeps mm -hmm. back in and these things. So I'm interested in, in your take on that. Thanks. Uh, yeah, organizations. I always find it quite hard to suggest them because I feel like they're all quite uniquely specific. Like some people might like be really interested in one topic and that's how they find that group or I always often think like if you want to participate in an organization what kind of relationship do you want to have with them um, is it something that you want to meet like every Tuesday at 6 p.m. you're going to meet up with that group is it something that is project-based and you just do one big project with them for a week like I think the way we interact with them can be different so I think that's always a good question to ask yourself like how regularly do you want to participate with them or how full-time half-time kind of thing but organizations, yeah, obviously, Greenpeace, which you mentioned. And I love, like, I've met so many local chapters in different cities I've gone to, and I've just loved how uniquely different they were, even though they were under the umbrella of Greenpeace. Organization I love here when it comes to, like, coastal environments is a, uh, they're called Surfers for Sewage, I think they're called. And they talk a lot about, essentially, like, our waterways and how that connects to the ocean. Often we can think of this ocean as, like, something that's far away, but really connecting the land to the water. Um, is one I like. I'm trying to think. I feel like as a resource here in London, I feel like Earthrise Studios are a good probably resource for that because they're more on the ground here, whereas I'm not here all the time, so I don't know all the local chapters. I think it's quite hard to suggest certain ones. I think it's like, yeah, finding that unique thing. And sometimes, you know, if you don't see it and it's not out there, you know, could even be inspired to start your own or connect with another organisation organization and be a branch of theirs. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, that answers. Thanks. I like it. I really like your question. I think it's an important topic, and I think people don't talk about it enough in the, the vegan movement. Um, you know, our relationship with food and how that affects us. I personally would say, you know, for some people, it was is a it's a positive thing. For me, it was very healing to have sort of a, a, a to take the focus off food as a way of nourishment or, or nutrition. It suddenly became about something much deeper for me, and that made me stop thinking it, using it as a way to punish and reward myself. So that really helped, and I suddenly found I had a much better relationship with food. But I would say, you know, kind of like what Bonnie's been saying the whole evening, like, it's not about right or wrong, and I really, I dislike that aspect of the vegan movement, about the whole policing thing. I think you should just take all the perfectionism away from it, and remember it's... Um, you're doing it because of the things you love in the world and that you want to promote those things. Um, so as soon as it becomes something else, I think that's when you should back off. But 
you know, with, with everyone, you have to listen to your, your own body and, and what's right for you. And I did in, the, in my early days of, of, of being vegan, I kept breaking it because I, I kept sort of just not being an imperfect vegan because I didn't like that it started to feel like a lack thing. Um, I think it should feel like an abundant lifestyle and, and if it doesn't, then maybe back off a bit. Um, but yeah, thank you for that question. And we do have to wrap up soon, so we'll take one more question from the crowd. I feel bad for you because you've... Ha- I want to know your burning question. You've been- <laughs> so we'll do two more questions and that's it. <laughs> Hi, I was just wondering, as you guys are both activists as well as actresses, like when you are on set, in what ways do you try and be sustainable? Because not really people, they just talk about brands and fashion and beauty, but no one really talks about the industry and how, what ways you can be sustainable. And as you were saying, Bonnie, earlier, like... It's just hard in some cases because there isn't enough resources and information for one to be sustainable and a lot of money spent in the industry using set props and using them once and then throwing away and like different locations and I know that some in some countries they have like rules and acts in place to not film in certain areas because it's like a natural sustainable resources and it's good for the environment. I was just wondering like how would you guys in terms of directive and creative control do you like try and use your beliefs and your thoughts into your lives when you're on set? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think inherently when I became more and more passionate about these issues, you know, you exist in a film set where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so wasteful. Like they just built a fiberglass set that's definitely going to landfill that they're hammering away and destroying and not like breaking those materials down and finding where to recycle those things. So it definitely was an eye-opening experience when I began to see filmmaking through that lens, which otherwise I just wouldn't have thought of. Um, So I think, yeah, you can try, you know, go to the production company and ask them questions about, like, what are you doing to address the waste that you may be creating here? As you're saying, are we leaving no trace on this location or are we actually damaging and not leaving it as we found it? Um, So definitely not being afraid to ask the questions. I think at first I was kind of terrified to like suggest little old me like hey I have some ideas maybe you should think about it Um, and then on the flip side of that in my own way of making my own much smaller scale films I really try and do as much as I can to address it and I think there are more and more production companies now that exist that their sole purpose is literally advising companies production companies to make their sets you know more kind of Um, you know less impact so I think there are great people that I guess hopefully will become more accessible and affordable for production companies to use in all spectrums of budget of film and I think the beauty of like you create these make-believe worlds as you get the joy of doing on film sets and how can you like see that as an opportunity to be resourceful and creative and not think you've got to like make new things all the time uh, and I think that could be quite fun and challenging for costume designers and set designers to maybe like bring that kind of resourceful like upcycling mentality to their their creativity. I would love to just wrap up with asking you, what would you like readers and listeners tonight to to take away from tonight and the book? What's the feeling you want them to? sort of focus on and cultivate yeah well first thank you so much for asking the questions and it's been lovely to be in conversation together and we obviously have you know behind the scenes of things so many things that we love to like reflect on and digest together through the experiences we've had um so for me I guess my my main aim would be for people to I hope not not read the book and sit on the ideas and and not do anything. You know, my idea, I hope, is that people 
feel inspired that they are enough and that their voice matters and their ideas matter and that the movement needs all of us uh, to show up, you know, some days more strongly than others um, and that can change and flow and our capacity to do these things can change um, as our lives do. So I just hope that people, yeah, feel inspired. They can make it their own. They can disagree with things. They can agree with things. Like that's a great reflection that you have an opinion and you have ideas. So yeah, just you know, take one small action or 10 or however many, but to, yeah, not sit on the information and share it with people around you. Like that instantly amplifies the message. Um, if you just share one thing you learned with someone else, even tonight, like telling a friend tomorrow mm. something you learned. Yeah, I love that. That's a great thing to send people off into the night with. Um, but you, you will be signing books yes. right now. Um, if you haven't got a copy yet, what are you doing? Uh, there's uh, <laughs> copies in the foyer. And you can get one and get it signed. And it just makes... It's a brilliant gift as well. I've been giving it to oh, yeah, all my it's friends. True. It's just, a good gift. Yeah, and, and my mom and everyone has... Yeah, they're going to change their lives. Um, so thank you for Thanks such a great conversation. Thank you. thank you, everyone. This episode of the podcast starred Bonnie Wright and Ivana Lynch and was produced by Dana Outcult and Esme Bright. The series is made by me and Dana and the editor is John Daugherty. Bonnie's book, Go Gently, is out now. If you enjoyed the episode, share it and write us a review. You can also check out our forthcoming events in London and online at howtoacademy.com. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>